Welcome back to another episode of Not Another Fucking Elf, our detailed Lord of the Rings character guide podcast, hosted by Lord of the Rings nerd Paul Ridd. Hello! And me, Catherine Bray, equally a massive fan of Lord of the Rings. So uh, it's another podcast, even though there are so many podcasts in the world. Um, why? Well, we're both big fans of Lord of the Rings, and we felt like we hadn't seen a character-by-character approach like this, which looked at different adaptations in exactly the way we wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, if there is already one doing exactly what we do, then we've messed up here. Yes. Um, And we're called Not Another Fucking Elf as a tribute to J.R.R. Tolkien's Drinking Buddies. Specifically Hugo Dyson, who apparently responded to some of the Professor's latest work with that charming little critique. Who are we discussing today? Today we are going to have a chat all about Eowyn, Woman of Rohan. And before we do that, your regular reminder that you can't be coming to us with complaints about spoilers because we are chock full of spoilers. This is a podcast for people who have read or watched or listened to Lord of the Rings at least once. So don't be coming complaining that you didn't know and you didn't want to know the big reveal that Durnhelm was Eowyn in disguise. Oops, Absolutely don't. already told you that. Don't come to us with that complaint. <laughs> Should we get started? Let's do it. So, kicking things off with the big question as ever, who is Eowyn? So Eowyn is a human woman. She's a blonde like most of her people because she is one of the people of Rohan, the horse lords, the Rohirrim. Her name means horse lover in Anglo-Saxon. We meet her in the Two Towers where Gandalf, Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas go to see her uncle Theoden, the king at Meduseld, to try to get him to do something about the traitor Saruman. Yes, and we also meet her brother Eomer, who's a captain of Rohan, and her stalker, Wormtongue, the crooked advisor to the king, who is actually Saruman's inside man. And she basically fancies Aragorn from the word go. He's clearly a big hunk of a lad, and um, I feel like she's related to most of the men she's met so far in her life, apart from Wormtongue, who, you know, like the clues in the name, he's not the one. So Gandalf manages the three Theoden from enslavement, and that kickstarts the whole war resistance to Isengard. Um, while Theoden and his lot confront Saruman's army at the Hornburg, it's up to Eowyn to look after the people of Edoras in the White Mountains. But she is keen to get involved in the action though. So when Denethor appeals to Theoden for assistance in fighting against Mordor, she has this big scene where she implores him to let her fight. Yeah. He won't let her, so instead she disguises herself as a male rider called Dernhelm, which is in Old English, Dern means concealed, apparently. Lovely. And she rides into the battle with the riders of Rohan, with Merry on her horse, Windfola, and heads to Minas Tirith. And then at the Battle of Pelennor Fields, she ends up in a big showdown with the Witch King of Angmar, and in a combined effort with Merry, brings down first his flying steed, and then the Witch King himself. Um, a conflict that results in her getting her arm broken. Yeah, it's a pretty particularly sort of gnarly encounter. <laughs> so, having killed the Witch King, Eowyn collapses and winds up in the Houses of Healing, where she's healed by Aragorn. Lovely, touching scene. But it's there that she actually first meets Faramir, Um, who she falls in love with and she decides to turn away from that previous life of being a warrior and wanting to be a warrior and becomes instead a healer. Yeah, she and Faramir eventually marry and they head to Ithilien where they have a son called Elberon and they live happily ever after etc etc. Yeah, lovely. Um, We don't know when she dies. Tolkien doesn't remember to put that into his timeline. (laughs) I think we know when Faramir dies but not not Eowyn. Interesting, cool. 
let's talk about Eowyn in the book. I feel like maybe as much as any character in the series, Eowyn's is the one that sort of underweight some of the most interesting kind of subtle changes in her eventual transition to big screen and to other iterations. Yeah, so she's kind of a tragic figure, I think, in a way. Um, she's raised alongside her brother Eomer and um, Theoden's son Theodred, and that's because their parents are dead, they're orphans. Mm -hmm. So she's she has this tragic backstory from the get-go, and Theodred is a character that we never find out that much about because he gets killed by Saruman's orcs. Mm -hmm. So this is someone who has been you know, a brother to her, and he's dead, her parents are dead, her country has been taken over by Saruman, her uncle, who's the king, is kind of in the grip of Saruman's crooked advisor. She's in like a really bad place at the point at which we meet her. Yeah, so she's going to evolve once... Um, Theoden gets kind of liberated from his enslavement and she's going to evolve into a character who's always going to be sort of questioning her place in the story and in the sort of um, uh, domestic sphere that she's been bound to by her world, right? Yeah, totally. Characters in the book say multiple times, you know, she is brave, she can fight. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, they're locked into this world of, but she shouldn't, she's a woman. Yeah. Um, so no one is very keen for her to be out in the field or anything, hence the deception with uh, the Dernhelm disguise get up, which is all very Shakespearean, mm -hmm. uh, that idea of women disguising themselves as men to go on quests. Mm -hmm. um, she fits very neatly into that. I think she's probably the most interesting female character in yeah. Lord of the Rings. Um, not that there are like loads to choose from yeah, or anything. Slim pickings, I suppose. <laughs> we'll do our big rosy cotton episode later. <laughs> but yeah, she she wants to be a warrior and it's interesting. I think through the kind of lens of modern day 2022 storytelling, we feel like, yeah, let her be a warrior. That's amazing. And then, you know, oh, this ending where she changes her mind and wants to be a healer and look after plants and... Mm live the sustainable life with Faramir in Ithilien, that kind of feels like a letdown, but I don't know that it should. Like it, no. It's kind of, I think it's kind of nice that she doesn't want to kill things anymore. Yeah, she wants to become a healer. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd rather be a healer than killing things, but I guess that's in real life. In a yeah. story, the people who go out and kill things are generally the more exciting. So yeah. I guess that's why it feels a bit of a disappointment that she does that kind of I want to be a stay-at-home mum mm -hmm. vibe. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? Because obviously J.R.R. would look down upon any reading that wasn't just a literal interpretation of the text. But forgive us, J.R.R., if we do this for a moment. <laughs> um, the idea of a woman who is thrust into a military context and then returns to a domestic life after that can't help but kind of conjure up images of the land girls in World War Two. Yeah, absolutely. There were in, and nurses on the front line and mm. drivers on the front line. Women were involved in the war that, although Tolkien kind of denies that it's... It's not about World War Two. It's II. not about World War One. Um, <laughs> one is the one he fought in, right? Yeah, but two is the one that's concurrent to him writing. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, and land girls as well. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he's like, it's not about any actual human war. Like, I wasn't, you know, the, the ring is not an analogy for the nuclear weapons that were developed in the 40s. Yeah. But obviously at the same time, and I think he does accept this, the life that a writer lives 
functions kind of like the soil that his stories grow from. Mm -hmm. And I think for sure you see that with Eowyn, that idea of women who, due to their circumstances, have kind of stepped up to the plate and done a lot of things that historically they haven't done before. And then that idea of going back home again mm -hmm. and being a good wife does sort of feel like it's going to be less exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's strange, isn't it? Because I suppose she has one of the big confrontations with one of the big, big villains in the story. But actually in the book, that aspect of the story kind of just gets a bit brushed under the carpet, doesn't it? She doesn't even get to reveal that to Theoden. Like, Theoden doesn't even find out that she did this amazing thing with the Witch King or, you know, combined with Mary. Because Mary's with Theoden when he dies rather than her. Yeah, and that's, I think, really sad and a bit less Hollywood, that idea that her uncle never even knew that she was out there on the field with him and arguably did something you know, even bigger and bolder and braver than he did. Mm -hmm. he, you know, she chops off the head of the winged beast mm -hmm. and I think the way I describe it in relation to Mary in the book is that she's a bit like... Stick with me because I don't really know football. But you know the guy who passes the ball to the person who then kicks the ball into the goal. Like yeah. she does the assist, I believe it is called. <laughs> Mary's the striker. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I can go with that. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about her relationship with Aragorn and how that functions in the story. Yeah, because it's interesting, isn't it? It's always portrayed as like, oh, she's in love with Aragorn, she fancies the pats of him. But I think there's a fair degree of hero worship there as well. She's mm -hmm. really concerned with the nobility of her house mm -hmm. and really feels the dishonour of her uncle becoming like this super aged guy who's listening to Wormtongue. And the dishonour of that, I think, is so important to her character that when Aragorn comes along, a noble king who can rescue them all and will be king of Gondor, Part of what she's attracted to there is who he is. It's this sort of hero worship fan thing as much as like, oh, this should be my boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's something that's born out of a kind of mutual respect as well, right? It's something that, you know, has to do with her transgressing her place in the world um, and wanting to kind of achieve heroic um, ambitions through her own actions, but also in her association with this clearly kingly figure yeah yeah she's she's someone who fundamentally like i don't think has that strong of a sense of herself mm -hmm. um when we first meet her because she's looking to other people so she's looking to her country to provide a sort of sense of honor and purpose and she's looking then to aragorn and like could i be with him and would that give me a sense of pur purpose and i suppose it's interesting to think about whether she repeats that pattern with Faramir or is it that she actually knows herself by that point and then when she falls in love with Faramir that's that's not her doing that again that's not her kind of going oh well you know what uh, a prince is just as good as a king <laughs> or sorry not a prince but um a steward's son the steward of Gondor like that's almost as good as a king I'm going to take second best is it that or is it that she actually comes to understand herself during the, the period she spends in the Houses of Healing mm -hmm. and that at that point she then falls in love with Faramir because she's kind of done the work as people say I mean she hasn't been to a therapist but she's done some <laughs> self-therapy yeah right then. the Houses of Healing as a sort of um, Tolkien-esque space of therapy it's like a retreat <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah. not yoga I don't think but it's yeah. that kind of vibe 
But also she shares a lot in common with Faramir, doesn't she, at that point in the story? Like they're both literally healing and also suffering from grief. So And yeah. both people who've been overlooked. Mm -hmm. She's been overlooked because she's a woman and so her brother has been the one going out on kind of the sexy missions. Faramir has been overlooked because he's got this kind of incredibly strong brother in Boromir who's older and supposedly hardier. Although, I don't know, Tolkien dances a bit of a dance with that because at the same time he portrays Faramir as incredibly heroic and mm -hmm. like learned and wise and at a certain point it's like, okay, Tolkien, so in what ways is he actually, you know, the beater? He's not yeah, really, yeah, no. he's, he's just as good as Boromir, but yeah. everyone around him, I think, particularly his father anyway, has perceived him as lesser, so he's had to deal with that, and Eowyn's also had to deal with that. So they kind of have a lot in common in those terms. Mm -hmm. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Because it kind of maps up with some other kind of power dynamics in the rest of the story, doesn't it? It kind of finds so many instances in the story where um, certain characters feel like they sit slightly below their the hero of the story. So uh, mm. Sam in his relationship with Frodo, and you know other characters who sort of sit slightly below the main hero line and they feel that sort of torture in various different kind of ways. Yeah, that's really perceptive. I think there's a lot of that status stuff going on. Um, and again, Tolkien is operating in a society and has a backstory himself where there's a lot of that going on. Like his, his wife, people didn't want him to marry her because she was perceived as below him in social status. And he's not from quite the typical Oxford professor background either, but becomes an Oxford professor. Uh, he's, so there's probably a lot of negotiation of status that he was having to do. I know as well that his wife didn't fit in with like, the other Oxford Don really? wives and felt kind of quite out of it. So I think there's a lot of attention to those kinds of um, ideas of like, am I above or below this person and how do I fit in here and will people accept me? Mm -hmm. It's interesting though, just coming back to this idea of her transition from a kind of uh, aspiring warrior, aspiring hero figure to someone who um, embraces a life of healing and a, a wifedom and um, motherhood. Um, that's that's quite a difficult thing to square with a kind of modern sensibility or like a modern idea of female empowerment, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess we're conjecturing a bit about the motherhood because we don't like we know that that happens from the timelines at the end of the Lord of the Rings. We know that she and Faramir have this son, but it's not dramatized. So for all we know, she was miserable and yeah. depressed and actually didn't enjoy. Uh, but we just can't say. Uh, we can't say how she um, experienced that. I think. So there's this key line in the book which says, then the heart of Eowyn changed, or else at last she understood it, and suddenly her winter passed and the sun shone on her. Um, and I think, yeah, do we think it's the heart of Eowyn that changed, or is it that she understood her own heart? Because Tolkien doesn't give us a judgment call on that. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if it's the idea that she understood herself at last, and it's quite a positive change, it's that actually this was your true self all along and the idea that you wanted to go out and kill things and take joy in, you know, songs of death, as it says at one point, then that's really positive if you're like, oh, actually, that wasn't me. If it's that her heart conveniently changed uh, just at the point when she's realised that she's not going to be a shield maiden and that Aragorn is out of reach, but there's this convenient guy there, <laughs> then it feels like a different, a different moment. 
yeah, it feels like she's sort of succumbing to her function within a narrative that can't include that kind of um, empowerment. But yeah, like I love that ambiguity. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. And Tolkien wrote about this stuff, interestingly, as well in his letters. Um, shall we have a little extract from one of those? Sure thing. This is talking about Eowyn. So, it is possible to love more than one person of the other sex at the same time, but in a different mode and intensity. I do not think that Eowyn's feelings for Aragorn really changed much, and when he was revealed as so lofty a figure in descent and office, she was able to go on loving and admiring him. He was old, and that is not only a physical quality, when not accompanied by any physical decay, age can be alarming or awe-inspiring. Also, she was not herself ambitious in the true political sense, though not a dry nurse in temper, she was also not really a soldier or Amazon like many brave women, was capable of great military gallantry at a crisis. So that goes exactly back to what you were saying about the kind of the land girls in, in World War Two and yeah. so on, that idea that any of us, and actually I think that sort of steps outside of predetermined gender roles, anyone is capable in a crisis of actions that don't define their core personality during you know, a more normal time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It opens up the possibility that it's just circumstantial rather than predestined, which is, you know, um, at odds in a way with a lot of the other characters in the story. Yeah, and I don't think it takes away from the idea that she that her actions are incredibly brave. If anything, it they're braver because it's that's not your everyday. I'm just like this. It's mm-hmm. like in a a time of need, you can step forward. It's much more like what happens with Frodo, who mm-hmm. is not but a nature, this heroic adventurer, but the circumstances demand that he steps up to the plate. So I think it's similar with Eowyn. So again, you've got that lovely mirroring, haven't you? You've got like a real contrast between what the hobbits do and what their function is in the story versus the more grand, um, sort of predetermined cycles that all of the more heroic conventional human and elfish characters are going to go through. And that's why she's such a good match for Faramir, because he also has that lovely speech about, like, I, I love, I don't love the sharpness of the sword for the sake of it, I love the things that those, that our military is able to protect, like, I'm not actually into the fighting, but mm. I do believe that we need to guard the realm and all of that. Um, there's another interesting bit in the letter where he kind of, re- which I think is unusually personal for Tolkien, where he responds to the criticism that some people leveled against him for the speed with which Eowyn and Faramir fall for each other. Um, Shall we have that that letter as well? In my experience, feelings and decisions ripen very quickly, as measured by mere clock time, which is actually not justly applicable, in periods of great stress, and especially under the expectation of imminent death. And I do not think that persons of high estate and breeding need all the petty fencing and approaches in matters of love. This tale does not deal with a period of courtly love and its pretenses, but with a culture more primitive, less corrupt and nobler. Yeah, so that idea that they, when, when Eowyn and Faramir are in the Houses of Healing and fall for each other, that's when everyone else is off in Mordor. and They don't know how that's going. It's probably going to go badly. Probably everyone they love is going to get wiped out and... Any day now, the forces of Mordor are going to appear over the horizon and completely fuck over the city. So yeah, you know, the, the, those are the kinds of circumstances where people get busy emotionally. Yeah, yeah. So it's more like uh, the circumstances under which um, people married very quickly during World yeah, War Two, yeah. knowing they were going to die the next day or whatever. Exactly, exactly. And I think he's also 
got a little bit again of his sort of personal biography in there because he and Edith, his wife, they fell for each other incredibly quickly. They were living in the same boarding house and that idea that, you know, actually we didn't need a long back and forth and I think it's a critique of the sort of suburban idea of you had to be stepping out for a certain amount of time and mm. then you had to be, you know, you were courting and you had to ask the parents for like all of that those sorts of stages I think is what he's referring to when he's talking about the petty fencing and approaches he's like if you love someone you know yeah. and it can be really fast yeah so some slight changes in the evolution of the story as so often happened um, as I understand it originally Tolkien envisaged Eowyn marrying Aragorn in fact yeah and I'm not sure whether the idea would have been to have Aragorn be in love with Arwen and then decide that actually he can't be with her, you know, the whole elf human thing is too much, or whether she would have decided that that wasn't going to work out and maybe a heartbroken Aragorn would have ended up with Eowyn, or if um, this was kind of before the whole Aragorn-Arwen thing even occurred to Tolkien and that this, you know, was just a much earlier concept but I do, I kind of, I could see that version, mm. absolutely. Like, imagine Eowyn's killed the Witch King, the, the King comes to heal her, and they fall in love. Lovely. Yeah. And Faram is kind of a late addition to the text as well. He's not a character that he, that Tolkien planned to put in there from the beginning. He just popped in out of nowhere when he was writing the Athelion passage and then ended up kind of sticking around for multiple chapters. Yeah. So I can completely see that version of it and... You know, in the film adaptations, I think it would have been hot to see Miranda Otto and, and Vigo. For off. sure, yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the various um, oral and visual adaptations of Lord of the Rings, um, let's talk about Erwin in the various different iterations that came forth. <laughs> iterations that come came forth! forth. <laughs> No, I love it. Yeah, uh, as ever, 1955, lost BBC radio version. Just I don't know pouring why, one out for this version. Why time. we mention this every week when it's going to be impossible always to listen to any clips from it. Um, oh. I suppose I hope that you know maybe someone hears this podcast and thinks, God, you know, my granddad used to work for the BBC. I think he's got some old tapes up in his attic that he might have you know, what if someone somewhere has a copy of this? I would be so thrilled. I know it's Wildly unlikely. Also, it's likely to have been pretty terrible, right? Like, in terms of how horribly Tolkien took against it. Oh, for sure. But he was he would have been like that about most yeah. adaptations, I think. Definitely. Um, I, I'm curious what he would have made of the Peter Jackson version. I Oof. think he would have been focused on the uh, changes that he wasn't into and probably more, more than the kind of bits that were faithful and that he liked. Yeah. But anyway, in that lost version from the BBC in 1955, <laughs> um, Erwin was voiced by an actress called Olive Gregg. A lovely name, Olive Gregg. Lovely name. Um, and she was apparently a minor film and TV actor from South Africa. Then you've got uh, 1978 Ralph Bakshi animated Lord of the Rings. For a moment I was like, well, she's not in this, is she? But then I remembered you do see her. She doesn't get to say anything. She doesn't get to say anything at all. Yeah. So all in all, a pretty pitiful show out for for Erwin in that version. That's yeah, it. just uh, not really a big force in the back she. No. She's there. She, kind of. 
So let's talk a little bit about the 1979 Mind's Eye uh, American radio adaptation of Lord of the Rings, um, in which Eowyn is played by an actress called Karen Hurley. So yeah, did, did some digging. I'm not sure I, if I'm if I'm besmirching the reputation of a completely different Karen Hurley. I apologise profusely, but if it is the same Karen Hurley that is uh, findable online, um, she's an actress who did some acting in the 1970s, but somehow also then later became an apprentice editor. Um, on Gladiator and Black Hawk Down. Um, so if it is that Karen Hurley, then that shows a huge range. And even if it isn't, I just want to shout out to career changes in the <laughs> film industry because that is a, a wonderful transition. And to have been an editor on Black Hawk Down, one of the most frantically edited films I've ever seen, that's, that's, that's range. <laughs> uh, perhaps the Karen Hurley who edited or assistant edited Black Hawk Down can get in touch and let us know definitively whether she is or isn't Eowyn from the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. Well, quite. And if she is not, huge, huge apologies and shout out. <laughs> okay, let's have a uh, listen to the work of Karen Hurley in the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation. So this is a clip where Eowyn is waking up after her battle uh, with the Witch King of Angmar. She's been healed, so she's obviously feeling a bit fragile. Uh, the work of Karen Hurley in the 1979 Mind's Eye adaptation. Eowyn? Eowyn? Eomir. What joy is this? What a... Said you were slain. Nay, but that was only the dark voices in my dream. Oh, how long have I been dreaming? Not long, my sister, but think no more on it. I'm strangely weary. I must rest a little. But tell me, what of the Lord of the Mark? Don't tell me that that was a dream, for I know that it was not. He is dead as he foresaw. He is dead, but he bade me say farewell to Eowyn, dearer than daughter. He lies now in great honor in the citadel. And what of the king's squire, the halfling? He lies nearby in this house, and I'll go to him. Eomir shall stay for a while, but don't speak yet of war or woe until you're made whole again. Great gladness it is to see you wake again to health and to hope so valiant a lady. To health? It may be so. But to hope? Mm. I don't know. quite a sort of orgasmic Eowyn there. <laughs> yeah, she's really happy to be healed. Yeah, all taking place at some sort of org orgy that's going on in the House of Healing. Yeah, I don't know why the Houses of Healing sound like the sort of background noise on like Doom or Quake or something <laughs> when there's, uh, you know, just going on in the background. Soldiers probably, I don't know, suffering from their wounds. I suppose it's a nice attempt to 
kind of build the story world of like there's lots of people injured not just the main yeah. important characters yeah. so on a on a logical story world level it's great on a on an on an audio experience level it's shocking yes <laughs> it just sounds all you've got this the suggestive noises going on main characters having this important moment and going on in the background Anyway, so that's a very, very American voice, or two very American voices. Um, it's hard to kind of... Uh... They're from Rohan! <laughs> Eowyn. Um, yeah. So much more in keeping with the um, kind of animated world of Return of the King, right? Yes, which we are about to hear. Shall we strap on some Rankin Bass 1980 Return of the King, Eowyn? Yeah, so here you've got... Erwin, voiced by an actress called Nellie Bellflower. Um, because the film was produced in kind of isolation, without versions of Fellowship or Two Towers uh, preceding it, uh, it's very much hastily compresses the plot of the book. And this is actually the first time you, uh, what we're about to hear is the first time we actually meet Erwin, which is on the Pelennor Fields um, at the climactic moment where she confronts the, the Witch King of Angmar with Merry. Um, so yeah... Nellie Bellflower is a prolific voice actor and actress. Um, but also, interestingly, she's a producer on Finding Neverland, for which she was Oscar nominated, and Miss Pettigrew Lives for a Day. So you absolutely love a career change, I love a don't career you? Change. <laughs> okay, so let's take a look at this scene. We'll put this on social media as well, I think, because uh, what I think is interesting about this is how anime she looks. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's quite a few animators who work on the in the Rankin Bass studio who later go on to work for, on for studios like Studio Ghibli and do much more credible work there. I think you can actually see hints of that in mm. this Witch King of Angmar section with Eowyn and Nellie Bellflower. Mm. Be gone, foul Dwimmer Lake, Lord of Carrion. Leave the dead in peace. How not between the Nazgul and his prey? Or he will slay thee in turn! Do what you will. I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me? Thou fool! Dost thou not know the prophecy? No living man may hinder me! But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn am I. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. A woman? Eowyn? Tis... Tis Lord Theoden's niece. She wanted to ride with us, but he forbade. <laughs> she disguised as a knight and she came hither. Just a chaos, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, so very anime-looking Eowyn. Uh, I don't mind Nellie Bellflower's vocal stylings like apart from the fact that she's american yeah um i feel like she's bringing that right kind of strength and nobility mm. um it's yeah i mean they're very different scenes obviously but the minds so the mind's eye version we were hearing eowyn at her weakest so mm. maybe it's not a fair comparison but this is more how i picture eowyn yeah, for sure uh, it's not how i picture the witch king at no. all sounds like a dying seagull it really does it actually sounds like um the effect that is used to create the voice of the vogons in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy 
<laughs> so it's just very weird for the Witch King suddenly to rock up and be, sound like a bogon. And I think they fluff the visuals of his death as well. His body sort of deflates like a balloon. It's yeah. not very good. It's just very poor. But yeah, serviceable Eowyn. No complaints really about the voice. Visually, it's more like anime. She looks nice. Yeah. Um... And so should we move on to the much more well-received, much more loved 1981 BBC radio adaptation um, in which Ellen Jenkins plays her. Um, I have never heard of Ellen Jenkins. No, she's a minor TV actor. I could find her playing a few uh, roles as cops in shows like Morse. But yeah, nothing very much more than that. Okay, so that feels like some continuity. Eowyn's kind of in that uh, authority. Yeah. Um military yeah adds to the weird morse lord of the rings universe with uh, <laughs> peter woodforp's role as well yeah lovely um, okay so this is ellen jenkins in the 1981 radio 4 adaptation of lord of the rings begone foul dwimmelake lord of carrion leave the dead in peace come not between the nazgul and his prey or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation, beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. <laughs> Behold my face, Lord of Darkness. No living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eomon's daughter. You stand between me and the king, my kinsman. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark, undead, I will smite you if you touch him. Yeah, so quite a... Shakespearean take on it, very much the principal boy about to reveal that she's in fact a woman. It's a nice point to jump to the riddle, which we haven't really talked about, have we? We haven't talked about the idea of I am no man, which is... Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit of... Uh, Shakespeare rep itself, isn't it? Slippery, um, but also, you know, he's also taken down by a hobbit who is also no man, so mm. it works for both of them. Yeah. Ooh, clever. Very clever. <laughs> I like... To just jump back into her performance again, I like the way she does a little laugh. The kind of like, um, and it's it's not in the realm of a Marvel gotcha, comic. No. We're not taking any of this too seriously. Sort of snarky laugh. It's a proper facing death with a grim chuckle yeah. laugh that she gets in there yeah. um, when she realises she's got one over on him. Yeah, and it's generally a better witch king, isn't it? It's most it's less <laughs> awful. After old squeaky boots, yeah. yeah. Um, we'll talk about him in our Witch King episode, but I think the BBC version is superior to the Rankin Bass version. I feel like that's a sentence I'm going to say a lot in this <laughs> podcast series. Between uh, that version and the eventual Jackson film, there is also, of course, the Rob Inglis 1990 audiobook version. Bobby Inglis, my man, yeah. Um, so this is the first time that we're looking at uh, male audio book narrator doing a female voice um obviously we're going to look at that again a little bit later on with mr andy circus but here's our first stab at it here is 
Rob Inglis. Here is Eowyn and Aragorn having a little chat before Aragorn goes off to enable the dead to fulfil their oath to his forefather Isildur and Eowyn is not really liking what she's hearing in this scene. Aragorn, she said, why will you go on this deadly road? Because I must, he said. Only so can I see any hope of doing my part in the war against Sauron. I don't choose paths of peril, Eowyn. Were I to go where my heart dwells, far in the north I would now be wandering in the fair valley of Rivendell. For a while she was silent, as if pondering what this might mean. Then suddenly she laid her hand on his arm. You are a stern lord and resolute, she said, and thus do men win renown. She paused. Lord, she said, if you must go, then let me ride in your following, for I am weary of skulking in the hills and wish to face peril and battle. Your duty is with your people, he answered. Too often have I heard of duty, she cried, but am I not of the house of Aeol, a shield maiden, and not a dry nurse? I have waited on faltering feet long enough. Since they falter no longer, it seems, may I not now spend my life as I will? Few may do that with honour, he answered. So basically you're getting the standard English thing when there's a female character speaking where he'll put on a slightly higher tone and it would be slightly more staccato. Um, it sounds like I've got beef with Rob Inglis. I absolutely don't. But when we're talking about this in contrast to some of the other versions, and particularly when it comes to a contrast with the circus version, you're not getting a huge amount of variation between Aragorn and uh, Eowyn in the scene in terms it's of... It's a man reading range. you the book. It's not like a no. big performance. It's that nice little uh, quote that we've referred to in our readings from the Tolkien letters, um, where Tolkien talked about her not being a dry nurse. She says mm -hmm. it herself. Uh, I guess that's in contrast to a wet nurse. That's people who breastfeed, right? So she's not like someone... She's saying... She's looking after babies, but she's not giving them a tit. But she's also saying she's not doing that. So... Yeah, well, she's saying she's not that. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on from dry nurse. Dry nurse, yeah. A dry nurse. That would be that, wouldn't it? It would be like just being basically a babysitter. Yeah, I guess. So she's not a babysitter. Cool. Cool. <laughs> then... We move on to the probably best-known interpretation of Eowyn, the Peter Jackson, Miranda Otto collaboration on yeah. the character. Lots Is that the right way to put it? <laughs> Miranda Otto, rel relatively sort of fresh-faced, new actress, um, the daughter of Barry Otto, who's a bit of a legendary Kiwi actor. Um, Barry Otto is in um, the Dolph Lundgren Punisher, amongst other films. Um, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, so she hadn't really done a lot at this point and uh, was cast having also um, Jackson having previously sort of flirted with the idea of potentially casting Uma Thurman in that role, apparently. Yeah, I think she was offered the role and um, felt like at that point in her, I think she maybe just had a baby and mm. it would have meant missing the first year of the baby's life, something like that, mm. being away in New Zealand. Um, but she's also said she massively regrets it so i don't know is that a critique of that baby and what it was like to spend the year no, fuck that baby <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uma thurman did not play eowyn the role went to miranda otto um miranda otto was actually one of the first interviews i ever did in my early career as a film journalist oh, wow. 
not about Lord of the Rings. It was the notional reason was she's also in the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds. Yes, of course. She's the uh, ever-suffering ex-wife, isn't she? That's the one, yeah. So we had a little telephone interview. I think I was 21 years old, baby Catherine, and I had written down the wrong day. So we were all out at lunchtime celebrating the managing editor of the magazine I worked for's birthday with like, a ridiculous amount of beer. And I got this phone call from the PR saying, you're meant to have called Miranda Otto 20 minutes ago. Where are you? Oh, God. So I had to run up the hill and into the office. I hadn't written the questions yet and just do this interview on the fly. Considering... The circumstances, it went all right. Miranda Otto was absolutely lovely. She kept she kept giggling, she kept laughing at me. Um, I don't know what that Where says about... Were you drunk, Catherine? Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, I asked her if she'd ever have a, had a Cornish pasty. That's the only <laughs> question I remember asking her, really kind of... Terrible. Had she had a Cornish pasty? Yeah, she. I think she had. She because there was something she'd been filming in Cornwall. That's where the question came from. Oh wow! Okay. Um, possibly part of. It wasn't a complete non sequitur. It wasn't just out of nowhere panicking. Have you ever had a Cornish pasty? Although nice question to yeah. ask people. Um, yeah, a bit of a break from the usual shit you probably get on the junkets. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. It went all right. It went all right. I didn't get fired, but I think they were probably questioning their decision to hire me in the first place at that point. <laughs> So Miranda Otto playing Erwin in the Peter Jackson series of films. We're going to hear a few clips of her now. Yeah, we've got a couple of these. I think Jackson is on the record as saying they weren't 100% on how they were characterising Erwin. And I think you can see that in the clips that she goes through sort of different tones. And I don't, you know, Miranda Otto is an excellent actor. I don't think it's about her not deciding what she's doing with the character. I think... She was directed to try different things with it. So we're going to have a look at a scene now that's infamous from the extended two towers where she is offering Aragorn some stew that she has made that plays into this trope of, I guess, warrior women can't cook. Not the finest hour of the Peter Jackson trilogy. No, we'll start with, like, a bad one. I made some stew. It isn't much, but it's hot. me a strange thing. He said that you rode to war with Thengel, my grandfather. But he must be mistaken. King Theoden has a good memory. He was only a small child at the time. Then you must be at least 60. 70? You cannot be 80. 87. You are one of the Dúnedain, a descendant of Númenor, blessed with long life. It was said that your race had passed into legend. There are few of us left. The Northern Kingdom was destroyed long ago. I'm sorry. Please eat. 
genuinely atrocious scene. <laughs> so she has to handle not only the, uh, you know, badass women can't cook trope, um, but also being Mrs. Exposition for Aragorn being 87 years old. Oh. I guess it's helpful to know that Aragorn is old and that maybe the relationship wouldn't have worked out for age gap reasons. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it slightly makes up for the fact that the Faramir business is so stacked in the end of Return of the King. Well, speaking of that scene, <laughs> do you want to see? Shall we have a little look at how that does play out? Let's have a look at that. There is no warmth left in the sun. It grows so cold. It's just the damp of the first spring rain. I do not believe this darkness will endure. Maybe it also just gives us a little bit more um, that we're lacking in the end of Return of the King and the development of the relationship with Faramir, which is so sort of relegated at the end of the film. Yes, yeah. Um, I think if you're watching the theatrical cut, all you get is they're sort of suddenly holding hands at the coronation of the king. <laughs> Let's dig deeper into that Aragorn... Eowyn stuff because the way that Jackson uses it is almost Eowyn's curiosity is a way into talking about Arwen and clarifying that relationship a bit more like I think I remember in the publicity at the time as well this idea of it being a love triangle was played up mm. in a slightly more Hollywood way than it unfolds in the book mm. why are you doing this the war lies to the east. You cannot leave on the eve of battle. You cannot abandon the men. Yeah. We need you here. Why have you come? Do you not know? It is but a shadow and a thought that you love. I cannot give you what you seek. And then he's a similar scene uh, where she's talking to her uncle Theoden and again being told to stay behind. You must lead the people to Helm's Deep and make haste. I can fight. No. You must do this. For me. So the final interpretation that we're going to look at is um, Andy Serkis's uh, 2020 audiobook of the whole of Lord of the Rings. And he generally takes inspiration from what people were doing in the Peter Jackson films that he was in, obviously, so it's his castmates, so that always feels like a nice little shout out. Yeah. He doesn't do that so much with this character, like he's not doing a Miranda Otto impression. Shall we have a little... Yeah, let's have a listen. Shall I always be chosen? Shall I always be left behind when the riders depart to mind the house while they win renown and find food and beds when they return? The time may come soon, said he, when none will return. Then there will be need of valor without renown, for none shall remember the deeds that are done in the last defense of your homes. Yet the deeds will not be less valiant because 
in battle and honor. You have leave to be burned in the house, for the men will need it no more. But I am of the house of Aeol and not a serving woman. I can ride and wield blade, and I do not fear either pain or death. So Andy Circus's take on Aeolin, um, not really doing a, an impression of a woman, just softening his voice a bit, a kind mm -hmm. of classic strategy for male audiobook recordings with female characters. It's nice though, I think he gets a lot of soul into it. Yeah, uh, unlike English, it feels like there's actual kind of differentiation a bit more <laughs> there. Maybe it's also because of the rhythm that he does and the, the kind of take the time that he takes to actually perform the lines in a way. You're absolutely on one with English today, and, aren't yeah, you? It's it's slagging the man off or Rob Inglis. It's, oh. it's such a lot to read. I know. <laughs> I was reading about it and uh, there's an account of Rob Inglis that says that they recorded it in some sort of fevered couple of months so I don't know <laughs> maybe wow. maybe English maybe Circus had a bit more time yeah I've seen the interviews that HarperCollins put out um, very, for some reason they're in black and white these classy uh, video interviews with Circus um, probably because it's literary and he's in a lovely booth one thing that he does that's quite interesting is um, he positions himself slightly differently depending on which character he's doing so you know maybe he's sitting up here for Aragorn or like down here for Gimli. So we've talked about Eowyn in the book, we've talked about her iteration in various media, um, we've talked about what she means as a character, her significance as the only kind of really active female character in the story. Um, before we go on to our favourite thing, the game, perhaps we <laughs> could just sort of wrap up with some lasting thoughts on, on, on her function in the story. Yeah, um... For me, something I think that's powerful to think about with her, and we, we know that Tolkien was not mad on doing the kind of, here's your biography and then here's where that pops up in things that you've written. But I do think it's interesting with respect to his female characters and how they reflect his relationship with his wife. It's quite well known that he kind of conceived of Beren and Luthien Tenuvial as a little romantic parallel for himself and Edith and the time that they love to spend in the countryside together. I think there's also this idea of Eowyn in there as well because Faramir is the character that Tolkien said that he identified most with himself. Oh wow. Okay. Um, so the guy that, like we said earlier, doesn't love you know the sword for its brightness and sharpness but loves the things that it defends. That's how he felt about his role in things like the war, was that it was sort of necessary to do this um, to protect your country, but not in a kind of um, flag to Praetoria, gung-ho, Winston Churchill kind of a way. And Eowyn, when she talks to Faramir about, wouldn't you rather find a woman of Gondor who's kind of on your own level? That feels very Edith, who was from a different social class and mm. people didn't all approve of the match. So I think Faramir and um, Eowyn, like, there's a little parallel there with Tolkien's own biography, which is kind of cute. Yeah, that's very cute. It's difficult to kind of separate out this character from perhaps the the kind of uh, endless discourse about um, strong female characters and what they mean and what they should function as and how they should behave and what they should do. But 
I don't know if you think maybe the original text is in perversely more progressive than than the film. That feels like the conclusion that we're coming to. I think so in a way, and it's in a way it's just because her interior life is somewhat more rounded out, and you get this idea of her as someone who goes through these series of emotional peaks and troughs, whereas I think it's slightly flattened in the kind of Peter Jackson version. Certainly, anything where you're adapting the text directly, obviously you do get all of that stuff. This idea that Wormtongue had poison for other ears than just Theoden is a really nice and powerful moment in the Aeon story. The idea that she was feeling, you know, there's classic lines, what is the house of Rowan but a, you know, a thatched barn where brigands drink in the reek, all of that stuff. And the idea that she's internalised that because of Wormtongue's hold on her uncle, I think is really powerful. We haven't talked much about Wormtongue kind of creeping around and stalking her. That's something that the film, the Peter Jackson film, makes more of yeah. than the... Well, she, he's been, she's been promised him by... Um, she's been promised him by Saruman, right? That's, uh, That's the implication, yeah. yeah. And Jackson has fun, I think, and Brad Dorif as well, with the idea of him watching her and haunting her steps and there's a scene where I think some people on the internet say they almost feel like she and Wormtongue are going to make out mm. where they have a very intense scene together and you can see why if you're basing it purely on what you're seeing on the screen on that moment that would have been an interesting way to go with it I yeah. think purists would have hated it but that idea that she's in such a place of self-loathing that she would even contemplate for a moment some kind of alliance, romantic with or Wormtongue. otherwise, with Wormtongue. Yeah, yeah. Because he sees her more clearly than anyone else, I yeah. think. It's interesting that you should talk about sort of things that people read into um, the film versions. I always think that there's so much more, maybe because they share slightly more complex scenes together, but there seems to be so much more chemistry between Vigo and uh, Miranda than there is between Vigo and Liv. Maybe because elves are inherently not Sexy? I don't know. Like, what's what's the deal there? A lot of Vigo and Arwen scenes are actually like Vigo thinking about her rather yeah. than scenes where they're physically present in a scene that's unfolding now, which is which the majority of the Aragorn Eowyn scenes are like. He's not dreaming about her when she's not there, so she, mm. of course, she seems like a more immediate presence. The worm tongue scene is interesting, and maybe we should actually cut it in here. The Wormtongue scene is interesting because he is someone who is looking at her as she is and the outcome of that is creepy because he's saying you are alone and I can see that you're alone and he's kind of underscoring the fact that she's not powerful. But the other scenes that she has with the men in her life, with Aragorn and with, with her uncle, that's kind of people telling her what she should do, not what she... Mm. And so there's less of a connect, connection there. Mm. Um, let's... Let's see the episode out by having a little look at that creepy worm tongue scene with Miranda Otto and Brad Dorif. Leave me alone, snake! No, but you are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness in the bitter watches of the night when all your life seems to shrink the walls of your bower closing in about you are hatched to trammel some wild thing. So fair, so 
cold. Like a morning of pale spring still clinging to winter's chill. Your words are poison. Creepy scene. Creepy scene. I think the reason it seems so creepy is that those lines that he speaks to her in the book, they belong to Gandalf being perceptive behind her back about how she feels about Rohan and the fact that uh, she's alone and the the sentences about her being so cold and fair, that's something that lots of people say about her at different mm. points. Jackson kind of ports those lines over <laughs> to Wormtongue, who doesn't say anything like that in the mm. in the book, and it creates this weird intimacy where something the author knows about her to be true is put into the mouths of a villainous character. Mm. It's really interesting. It's certainly not canon, but I think of the non-canon things that happen with Eowyn, I think it's one of my favourites, mm -hmm. because it feels psychologically true. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's It sort of lends an undercurrent of kind of menace and ambiguity to her that's uh, maybe not sort of gifted to her later, later on. Anyway, would you like to play a game? I would love to play a game. <laughs> yeah, it's finally time to play the page off, possibly my favourite part of the podcast that we do together, Catherine. Um, and do you want to explain how we play this beautiful game? The beautiful game is the page off, yes. So we read out a randomly generated quote from the Lord of the Rings and then we try to guess what page it comes from. If we are lucky and skilled enough to guess the exact page that it comes from, we would score zero. If, say, you're 50 pages off, you would score 50 points. So the aim is to score as few points as possible. Beautifully explained. I will say at this point that we are significantly far apart in terms of our scores. Um, I have total humili humility about this, and I know I will one day uh, rule, but uh, at this point I'm very far behind you, aren't I, Catherine? Yeah, and he's not bitter about it. So we're keeping a running score across the podcast series, and at the current point in time, I'm on, what is it, 200 and... 239 points. And Paul, what what's your score so far? I'm afraid it's 400, Catherine. A nice flat number. That's one way of thinking about it. But yes, 400 points to me. 239 to Catherine. And the aim is to score as few points as possible. I think that just bears repeating. Yes, it bears repeating that the aim is to, repeat, to, to very much score as few as possible. So shall we crack on and randomly generate a quote? Let's do it. So as ever, we're using the site happycow.com, but I expect there's lots of other sites out there where you can randomly generate a talking quote. And so here we go. So we now have the quote. Do you want to read it out, Catherine? Okay, so the quote in question is, Mercy, cried Gandalf, if the giving of knowledge is to be the cure of your inquisitiveness, I shall spend all the rest of my days in answering you. What more should you like to know? Oof. So I think he's talking to a hobbit. Yes. That's pretty clear. I'm just trying to figure out whether he's talking to a hobbit very early doors or if it's something along the way. Um, because that is a division of about 600 pages. <laughs> that's, <laughs> no, that's a remit. True. Yeah. I think I know who he's talking to and therefore where in the book it's situated. 
One of the slightly unfair aspects of the page off is is who goes first each time, of course. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I'm thinking that he's talking to. Oh God, because I feel like it's. Ugh. It's like Mary or Pippin rather than Sam or Frodo. Um, yeah, I think it's Pippin. So I mean, it might not be, but I think it. Def- it's giving me Pippin and Gandalf on their like two guy adventure. Yeah. So it's giving me Return of the King. But what if it's Fellowship and then I'm down eight hundred pay eight hundred points. Well, look, I will be too because I'm 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 also saying uh, later in the book. I think it could be Towers though because yeah. Pippin. Riding off with Gandalf. When does that start? That's like after the Palantir mm. fuck up on Pippin's part. Um, and I think it's... You know when Pippin's galloping along with Shadowfax mm. and Gandalf is reciting ancient rhymes mm. under his breath all about seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Mm. I think this is that conversation. Of course, I could be wrong and I still have to place that conversation in terms of page number. Mm. Oh, fuck it. I'm going to go 650. 650. 650. Sounds like a strong guess to me. If I wanted to be a real dickhead right now, I could just guess the same as you because then any gains are neutralised because we would get the exact same score for this round. Strategy? Strategy. Might be more fun to maybe just guess off by a few pages from me so there's a bit of a spice to it yeah so i'll either extend my lead by a little bit or you'll you'll eat away into it which should which will make for a more exciting final round if we're exactly. closer okay yeah i'll do that i'm gonna guess 700 okay okay so 650 paul's guess we've landed in faramir country with Sam and Frodo. If we had a better memory across the season... Exactly. Well, that's probably the fucking, you know, uh, I prefer swords and the purpose behind them rather than the actual swords themselves shit. That's probably the same, isn't it? It was weeks ago, though. Can't be expected to remember this stuff. Um, (laughs) Okay, 700, my guess, lands us on... Yeah, Frodo, Sam and Gollum back together after the Faramir adventure... Okay. Um, they're just about to go into Shelob's lair. Fantastic chapter. Oh uh-huh. my goodness, so exciting. Um, it happens on my birthday, actually, in the oh, chronology nice. of, of The Lord of the Rings. 12th nice. of March is Shelob's lair. Incidental detail for you. Just trying to stave off the moment where I realise how many points. Any I've of lost. our listeners who are invested in identity theft as well will like to know Catherine's birthday. You don't know how old I am. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> 21. Exactly. Okay, so. Where is this actual quote from? I think I'm right about the conversation it's from, though. This, this yeah. Palantir Gandalf business. Aha. Okay, so, yes, we're correct about the conversation that's taking place in. It is indeed Gandalf talking to Pippin on page 584. And it's he's getting a little lecture about having used the Palantir and... Gandalf's giving him lots of good answers about various bits and bobs. Mm-hmm. On the previous page is the seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. Nice. 
So you were right about the positioning, but the page number... Page number eluded me. Well yes. off. Okay, so what is 700 minus 584? Uh, that is 116. Okay, so we can add 116 to my score. Come on, Mr. Bass. 355. 355. Okay, so okay. I'm on 355. And Paul... That said 650. Oh, yeah. So it's 66. So it's 466. Paul's on 466. The gap is narrowing. The gap is narrowing. I'm I'm worried. All to play for. Until next time, when we play The Page Off. The Page Off. Thank you for listening to Not Another Fucking Elf, a Lord of the Rings character guide podcast by me, Catherine Bray. And me, Paul Ridd. We are a self-produced podcast, so please follow us at Not Another Elf on all good social media platforms. And it would be great if you could give us not one, not three, not seven, but five stars for multiple podcasts on your podcast app. Thanks to Tommaso Alietti for handling our digital bits and bobs. Anthony Ng for our jingle, Charlie Shackleton for our cover art, and anyone else who helped us out along the way. Much appreciated. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and we strongly urge you to go out and buy the 1978 Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation, the 1980 Rankin Bass Return of the King, the 1981 BBC Radio Lord of the Rings, 2001 New Line Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, and the 1990 Rob Inglis and 2020 Andy Serkis Lord of the Rings audiobooks, both from HarperCollins. And buy the book! There are so many nice editions of the book out there. We also recommend the Humphrey Carpenter biography as a starting point if you're curious about the life of the man himself, and the collected letters also collated by Humphrey Carpenter with Christopher Tolkien. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week when we're looking at a character who doesn't have any lines. That's your clue for next week. This has been Paul Ridd. And I'm Catherine Bray. And that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. And now I think I'm quite ready for another adventure. Mm-hmm.